Memorabilia, Collecting Sounds with Kenneth Goldsmith. I guess the uh, obsession with collecting begins with my grandfather, who was a great collector of books. He was an up-and-coming lawyer in the 1950s and was a very cultured man and identified his intellectual life with his collections. And he was part of a book club and he purchased a few books every month, these beautiful hardbound editions of books. It was all about being a lawyer during the day and being a collector and an intellectual after work. They were collections of uh, the classics. He had every classic book, and as a kid, I just grew up loving these books. They were beautiful. I just spent hours and hours with them, looking through. They were always lavishly illustrated, and since nobody in the family had any interest in them except for me, when he died, I inherited all his books. What I didn't know was that as I was going to pack up his books, I discovered a secret library of his that had all sorts of difficult literary modernism, even what well, I call literary erotica mostly, which would include the works of Marquis de Sade, all sorts of illegal books that weren't allowed to be imported into the U.S. by authors like Henry Miller. He had uh, books on nudism and, of course, fantastically difficult books like Finnegan's Wake and several editions of Finnegan's Wake. Soft morning, city. Lisp. I am leafy speaking. Lap. Faulty and faulty all the nights have fallen onto long my hair. Not a sound falling. Listen. Seeing my grandfather's collection sort of became an impulse for me to begin collecting. I just saw how amazing that accumulation of stuff was. And since he sort of did books, I did records. And I just began really obsessively collecting records as a kid, beginning with uh, Beatles records. Then in junior high school, I became a fan of heavy metal and Black Sabbath, and I sold all my Beatles records. And then later I became a hippie, and I sold all my Black Sabbath records. And then I became a punk and I sold all my uh, Grateful Dead records, and then I became interested in the avant-garde, and I sold all my punk records. And subsequently, I went and I bought all those records back, each and every one of them. And it was a really great lesson because I just learned that uh, a collector can never sell anything. And from that moment on, I never sold anything. I keep everything, even things I don't like, because they become part of one's intellectual history. I don't think you become impulsive or obsessive. I think you're just sort of born that way. I definitely was born that way. I mean, the collection that has become UberWeb is a result of an obsessed man, obsessed with, with collecting everything that he possibly can and gathering together everything that he possibly can about the avant-garde, which is a very, you know, sort of an endless idea of collecting. Number nine, number nine. Number nine, number nine, number I had to have every Beatles record. Nine, 
And I would use occasions when bad things would happen to get records. For example, a pet would die. And uh, I remember a dog being hit by a car. And I was upset about the dog. But I realized if I showed that I was upset enough, my parents would be, ah, want to go to the store and get another Beatles record? And so I, you know, before I had any money, I would sort of, you know, use... Uh, emotional ploys. I would perhaps pretend I was more upset than I really was just so I could get, uh, you know, Hey Jude. <laughs> I think there really is a deep emptiness inside every collector. Collecting is a substitute for all sorts of things, you know, that are missing. And I mean, I, we can get, you know, psychoanalytic here and talk about the lack of my parents' love. I mean, my parents were distant and perhaps cold and my collections were my friends. You know, I didn't have very many friends, and my parents were, you know, interested perhaps in my sister, who was a more mainstream character. So it was always me alone in my room with my collections. It was also a way of distinguishing yourself. You know, you were, you were different from other people because you had cooler things. You had intimate knowledge about things that nobody else had. And so while everybody was, you know, sort of still over here listening to James Taylor, you were over here listening to Neil Young. Ah, and that sort of takes you into this other strange place. It was a way of completely distinguishing yourself from other people. And that became an identity thing. You know, the accumulation of, of cultural artifacts became sort of a cool factor for geeks. I was able to create a self-sustaining world through intellectual property. Much later, when I became interested in very expensive music and very difficult music and very obscure music, the most obscure music, you know, that couldn't be found in thrift shops or even dumb record stores. I became a music critic and I wrote a great letter out to every small press and small label that I could possibly find, telling them that I was now an experimental music critic in the world's largest music market in New York and I would be happy to review their records, because I had a very wonderful editor who allowed me to do whatever I wanted. I mean, really experimental things. I remember there was one thing that I wrote about. These kind of crazy people in Australia made a whole record based on the sounds of a car. I can't even remember what kind of a car it was. Or another record of just dogs howling. And it was called Found Sound Dog Pound. And it was just the most annoying record in the world of just dogs howling. But you could kind of think of it as being kind of an experimental sound work. I mean, I was allowed to review these things in a mainstream New York newspaper. I mean, it was really cool. So I would get hundreds of obscure CDs from around the world every week. Boxes and boxes of them would come. This was in the mid-90s. To this day, I still get things in the mail from people, you know, even though I've stopped writing about music a long time ago. But it was funny, but I, I kept taking more and more music writing gigs. I mean, the money was not so good, but man, the loot was great. And I do want to make a distinction between things that you buy and things that you're given, because the things that you buy are things you shouldn't give up, the things that you actually sought out, but the things that came to you, you can kind of feel somewhat indifferent about. Maybe you can learn to love them, but it's not the same as having sought something out and actually purchased those things. But still, I don't sell anything. I just still keep 
everything just in case. It's about hoarding. It's about a kind of a fear of emptiness in a way. You know, it's the same way when I travel. I, I travel with a suitcase full of books because God forbid I should be caught on a plane without a book. What would happen then? And so there's a sort of idea of abundance. So you're never alone. I mean, again, this probably does go back to my parents and a lack of love. You never want to be alone. You're always self-sufficient because you carry your intellectual materials with you. Aus dem Land, das sich selbst zerstört und uns den Way of Life diktiert, da kommt Regen, bringt Waffen und Tod und hört er Frieden, sieht er rot. Everything happens because you live in New York. I can't imagine that I would actually be sitting here if I didn't live in New York. I can't imagine Uberweb ever would have been created. I mean, New York uh, just creates a drive. It matches anybody's OCD or obsessive tendencies. The pace of the city and the drive and the ambition of New York makes you achieve the uh, superhuman. There's no excuse in New York. The other thing that New York did, besides give me a job as a music critic in a major market, it also gave me a uh, opportunity to be a DJ for 15 years on WFMU, which is New York, New Jersey's, uh, or America's most famous radio station. And that became an enormous factor. Uberweb grew along with my record collecting and also along with my time at FMU. There are collectors that hoard, but I think every collector wants to share. You know, it was a way of showing off what you had by sharing somehow. So it would be, you know, finding another person that was collecting, they'd come over and, oh, you know, look what I have, and you go over, look what you, you know, look what you have. But there became, uh, you know, again, maybe it had to do with New York. It was amplification of sharing. Not just sharing with one person, but being read by 10,000 people every week, being heard by 20,000 people on the radio. And everything in New York is about magnitude and amplification. So it wasn't enough just to be, you know, some weird guy in some little town sharing something with a buddy. It had to be a very New York style of sharing. And Uberweb, of course, is sharing with untold hundreds of thousands of people. Currently, or, or I guess I can call mature collecting phase, I collected things that were actually in print and available. I also collected things that nobody else wanted. Nobody else was interested in that. I'm sure they couldn't sell those, they couldn't give them away. And I think it was Andy Warhol that said, if you want to be a collector, you have to collect what nobody else wants and then you can get the best things in the world. So no, there's no competition. You know, I'm a collector of obscure things and Uberweb is a huge collection of obscure things that most people don't really understand or, or, or know about. But on the web, it's also about generosity and sharing. I mean, downloading something from me doesn't take it away. I don't need to be obscure in that way. You know, where there's enough for everybody to go around. Even if you want it, everybody can have it.
my writing is all collections of things, you know, often collections of texts. And I once wrote a book that was listing every record that I have. It was called 6799, which means my first record that I bought was 1967, and then I wrote the book in 99. So it actually represented every single record that I had up until 1999. And on the back, I tabulated the number of records of the artists I had the most of. I think the top was Frank Zappa. The second was John Cage. But of course, now I have, I have on my hard drive much more music than I have on my shelves. I have over 10,000 vinyls. I used to count. My books I actually keep all alphabetically, so I can always be surprised. The, the genres of my book collection mix up. But my records go alphabetically by genre. And it's pretty, actually pretty straightforward, you know, big sections of, of opera, you know, big sections of easy listening music and, and so forth. I have such an eclectic collection. I was interested in R&B. I was interested in old soul records. I was interested in old jazz records, world music and chess records by uh, Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and Chuck Berry. I mean, those were really hard to find. And I'd dig through record shops and you'd find a scratched up old record on chess and you'd go, this was before anything was reissued. And you'd go, wow, this is amazing. collect really weird spoken things. I really love eccentric language. I have enormous archives of, of these man-on-the-street interview people called Coil and Sharp that create metaphysical, philosophical problems uh, in the early 1960s as they go through the streets of San Francisco proposing really strange things to regular people. That was actually somehow miraculously broadcast on the radio. Very little of that has been released, and I actually went to Mal Sharp to actually get those tapes. I like eccentric and extreme points of view as expressed in language. I've got a record that's on Ubu, but it's one of my favorite records that I own by a guy named Jim Roach, who was a southern redneck and decided to be an artist. And he made a whole record channeling characters that came from the Deep South. It's the, about the hardest stuff I have that, to listen to. They're racist rants that are the most offensive horrible things you've ever heard. You and you bubble blowers are made fucking in Japan, aren't they? Right? Right? Made in Japan? Piece of shit bubble blowers? Okay, uh-uh. My bubble blower was made in fucking Belgium. Nobody makes bubble blowers like the Belgium people, man. Any goddamn bubble blower knows that. Shit. I was never a tape collector, and I'll tell you another thing that I never was was a 45 collector. I always thought that was a big waste of time, having to get up and change a 45. I couldn't care less about that. And other things I couldn't care less about, I really don't care about record covers. A lot of collectors really buy things because they have cool record covers. Or another thing that I don't care about would be editioning, you know, to get a first edition, to get a rare edition. I mean, I'd, I'd always get bad editions. And the other thing that I don't care about is the condition of the records. I always keep a very bad stereo 
I don't have good stereo equipment, and so it all sort of sounds the same to me. And people say MP3 is much worse than a LP. I, I quite, quite frankly, I can't tell the difference between them. You know, to me, it's all just music, which probably comes from the fact that I grew up listening to transistor radio as a kid. And if it couldn't sound good on a transistor radio, then I, it wasn't worth hearing. And that was kind of always my attitude. I was never an audiophile. I have so many MP3s that I have no idea what I have. In prior days, I had sort of say always liked dub music, and I had collected a, a few dozen dub LPs, but with the advent of MP3 blogs, I just began downloading, obsessively downloading anything that had the word dub in it and was from a certain period. And I would file them in a folder called reggae. Then I would put each artist's name, and then I would just keep downloading and throwing records into them. I mean, for example, King Tubby. I don't even know what's in that folder. I have no idea, but I think there are hundreds, of, you know, because these guys were prolific. And MP3 block sharing encouraged everybody to just put everything up. So I have no idea, say, what's even in that dub folder. Probably thousands of wonderful dub records now. I have no idea what I have. This is just, just that's only in the reggae folder. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've downloaded entire ooves of artists just because I can. I mean, one torrent would give you everything that Frank Zapp and the Mothers of Invention ever did. Complete discographies, Neil Young. I happen to like Neil Young very much, always liked Neil Young. But then you get a torrent that contains, I don't know, 350 Neil Young things that would be alternative releases, bootlegs, live shows. Fantastic, I take it all. What even people, you know, people like us? Uh, Vicki Bennett, who gives her entire oeuvre, which is really enormous. She makes more music than just about anybody. And she gave that to me to put on Ubu, but it also ends up sitting on my hard drive because all of this stuff goes in Ubu. So it is just too much. To me, this is the real mystery. You see, this is the thing about the hard drive that I actually like very much, is that you really never know what's there. I know it's on my shelf. I can see the spines on my shelves, but on my MP3 drives, they're just folders, nested folders, and I have no idea what's in them. And it's and, and sometimes it's wonderful to go digging through them just to see what's there. Oh, you had that? Didn't realize it. <laughs> Three, two, one, full power. I spend money on hard drives now, not music. I used to spend so much money on music. Every cent I had from the time I was a teenager and worked a regular job until I stopped buying records, I would spend and spend and spend, you know, like an addict. It was ridiculous. I'd come home with stacks like this. I'd spend hundreds of dollars on a Saturday afternoon. That's all I would do. Now I spend money on hard drives, and it's much cheaper than anything. 
kein Reklame, wusste ich, dass sie Latschen. Gegangen ist mein Mama mit mir sehr schwärze Kind. WFMU had a CD-Burner, which it, at some point in the late 90s was very radical to have. You know, you could never make your own records. You could make tapes, but, you know, mixtapes or what have you, but those weren't usable in the same way as CDs were, the sort of magical thing that, you know, you could actually then begin to replicate discs. And that seemed very industrial and very seductive. So once that happened, I would just spend hours and hours burning the station's CD collection to the point of overload. I would have these big spindles, finally, spindles and spindles of CDs. And then at some point around, I guess it must have been 99 or 2000, when everything went to MP3, the first time I saw Napster was just a complete mind opener. Like, really? I can browse your files and I can have those things that are sitting there and you can have mine? Wow. It opened up my worst collector tendencies because collecting was always very local. Even at WFMU, it wasn't an ecosystem of collection. It was actually a one-to-one correspondence. I could take this CD and duplicate it. But the minute you got onto the file sharing networks, then it was my worst obsessions and I just began hoarding. I just began grabbing as much as I could. I couldn't believe that such a thing ever existed. I never had to leave the house after that to go record shopping. And I still don't. I used to spend my weekends record shopping. I used to go to flea markets record shopping. Now I sit at home and I go record shopping every night. The thrill of the hunt on the file-sharing networks became a hunt for just more. If all of those cool things are available, and they're constantly available, then you just go and you want quantity. The thrill was in just going, holy crap, I just downloaded 50 obscure dub albums this evening. And you compare it to the way that used to be in the world. I mean, I would have killed for one of these back in those days. I just hauled in 50 Studio One records. The thrill is in quantity. You also assume that it's good stuff, though you'll never really know. I'm not in a hurry. I got plenty time. Herbert Mirzugen, make it quick. Can do it long for I'm not in a hurry. I got plenty time. I support plenty of artists and I support plenty of musicians on Uberweb. You know, if I take, I give more than my share back to communities. You know, I've supported this music for a long time. If I can dedicate my time to promoting obscure artists' work on Ubu who are really deserving of it, then that's my pleasure. And I spend a lot of my own time doing that. So I'm interested in giving back. I'm not just interested in taking. Ubu is a a, a way of, of paying back community. It makes the world a, a much better place, even if my ethical tactics are sometimes questioned by people. It's a gesture of benevolence that uh, is helpful and not harmful. Now the frost is on the pane, rugs upon the floor again. Now the screens are in the cellar, now the student cons the speller. Lengthy summer noon is gone, twilight treads the heels of dawn. Round-eyed sun is now a squinter, 
Tiptoe breeze, a panting sprinter. Every cloud a blizzard hinter. Squirrel on the snow, a printer. Rain spout, sprouteth icy splinter. Willy-nilly, this is winter. Summer swollen... I don't believe in competition. I believe in abundance. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so interested in abundance. I think there's plenty for everybody to go around. I don't believe that competing or hoarding does anybody any good on any level. I, you know, there's enough love, there's enough opportunity, there's enough music, there's enough money to go around for everybody. And I think my collecting ethos really demonstrates that type of belief in, in supreme abundance and sharing. Now the apple and the oak paint the sky with chimney smoke. Husband now, without disgrace, dumps ashtrays in the fireplace. Ubu is the result of, of all my collecting. And it's led to a, an enormous kind of life. It's I mean, Ubu is what got me my job at the university. And my collecting actually gave me my career. I teach English in a very good university because I was a collector. Even, say, when I was invited to the White House, being able to read my poetry to the President of the United States, I can actually trace that gesture all the way back to my collecting and a way of moving through Ubu, and which actually led to an invitation to the White House. So collecting gets you to places you never imagined. Amazing, really. I think that in the digital age, we spend more time organizing our materials than we do using our materials. And it's not so simple. When I used to put an LP on the turntable, I listened to music. Now, in order for me to listen to music, take the example of burning a CD, I've got to put it into the, into the computer. It calls up a database like GraceNote. It then converts and peppers uh, all the files with lots of language. It creates sub-subdirectories on my uh, system, uh, several weird subdirectories that I have no control over, and names everything and pulls down artwork. And then if I want to move it, I've got to now rename it, drag it somewhere else, make another folder, put it in there, subfolders. Clearly, this is a lot more work than just putting a record on a turntable and listening to it. The work of digital culture is, is, is secretarial. You know, this happens with writing, too. The minute I use the command save as, it implies replication. So it's uh, I've now got a copy, and I'm saving a copy elsewhere in addition to the uh, temporary copies. And if I want to email you that document, then it implies another level of replication, and then now you have to deal with that document. Do you keep it? Do you save it as? Or if you pepper a listserv with a document, it goes out to potentially thousands of people who all have to now kind of deal with this idea. Writing used to be taking a piece of paper and a pencil. Listening isn't just listening anymore. It creates a whole ecosystem of tasks. And so we all have become default archivists of our own archive. We're just managing information more than we're using it.
collector can imply hoarding and sharing with a few. An archivist can imply being public and needing to share with many. Also, an organization that doesn't only make sense to oneself, like the way that my records, say, are organized or the way that I collect, but actually trying to make some sort of an historical case where the collections become more integrated into an argument, an intellectual argument. My intellectual argument is UberWeb. And so suddenly my obsession with collecting took a very different turn when I began to want to really share what I did and and frame it outside of my own subjectivity and in a sense objectify my collection. I began collecting different types of material, and I began organizing them very differently. And my public collection of UberWeb is quite different from the eclecticism that resides on my hard drives. Of course, uh, there's no dub, say, on UberWeb. A public collection becomes an, an archive. I believe a private collection remains a collection. Ubu began as a, as a repository for concrete poetry and then sound poetry. But we hit this moment where John Cage did these sound poems with an orchestra, and it wasn't quite fitting into the genre of poetry anymore. And at that moment, it becomes the idea of the avant-garde as a general term becomes really attractive to me. And I thought, there should be an archive of the avant-garde on the Internet. <laughs> Nobody else seemed to want to make it. And I thought, gee, well, I, you know, I'll make it, and I'll define it, and I'll collect, and I'll archive an argument for what I consider to be the avant-garde. And it's a very personal argument. It's not really a historical argument at, at all. It's the way that I care to see the world. For example, on UberWeb, because the film section says organized alphabetically, you have Samuel Beckett, B-E-C-K, right next to Captain Beefheart. B-E-E-F. And you've never heard those two names together. I mean, I never heard those two names together. But you think about it, and you go, oh, Captain Beefheart couldn't have existed without Samuel Beckett. And suddenly you have these kind of wonderful conversations that don't happen elsewhere. So Ubu is an archival argument for the unexpected collision of different types of characters from different types of fields that find themselves together in the same room. And to me, that's really hugely exciting. The web has reached such a saturation point where there's almost nothing that hasn't been written about. Even the most obscure things has some documentation somewhere. And so the documentation that goes with my obscure artifacts on Ubu just comes from the web. Nothing self-generated. It's all taken from elsewhere. Often it's very unreliable. But I feel it's important to have something that's at least unreliable that you can dispute. For example, on Ubu, there are sound recordings attributed to Guy Debord. And I had a Debord expert many years ago write a long email saying that he suspected 
that this really wasn't DeBoard's work. It might have been somebody else putting it out under DeBoard's name. And I said, hey, I said, great, I'm going to leave the DeBoard stuff up, but can I post your comments? He said, yes, if you do it anonymously. And I did. So there you go. It may not be what it says it is, but there's an argument there, you know, as to why or, or why not. Use it at your own risk. It's unreliable. The accumulations of UberWeb are from private file sharing servers to which, because it's UberWeb, I get invited all the time. And so I have numerous invitations to amazing troves of information that are put up there. This is the curious thing, by collectors who are really obsessive, who just have a compulsion to share things. I don't know where these people get these things. I have absolutely no idea. But Ubu then acts kind of like Robin Hood, taking them from a very private group of people that only have limited access and releasing it to everybody, you know, because I have that access. I've always wondered who these people are and where they get their things, but there is just such a need to share information now. Collectors, I think, previously really didn't care for sharing, but now in the digital moment, most people just are dying to share their collections. You know, the idea with Ubu is to make available for as long as I can things that nobody else wants, maybe only one person. I don't know, I don't really have stats as to what's downloaded. But I, I know some things are probably downloaded very infrequently. But that's, you know, it's beautiful to me. I don't even know what's there. You know, again, it's this problem of abundance. I'm always surprised. I was like, oh, wow, that film. Or, I've always wanted to be surprised by my own collections. And that will go for my own writing. I write these very, very large books that I can never know. So I can actually still pick up books of mine and find things that I didn't know existed within those books. So this sort of element of constantly being surprised and not knowing what you have is, is, is really a magical quality. I've written many books, and my books are all collections of things, removing information from one place to another, reframing things. It's all kind of one large artwork, and people always want me to claim Ubu as, as an artwork. I can do that. I don't really, never really conceived of it that way, but at the end of the day, far and away, Ubu is the most important thing I've ever done and probably ever will do. And if I'm ever remembered for anything, it'll be Ubu Web. There's all these kind of film clubs around the world that have UbuWeb screening nights. Every Wednesday night, a group of people in Sao Paulo will get together and show a selection from UbuWeb. So UbuWeb creates social situations that I can't possibly anticipate. But one thing I never wanted it to be was about me. See, and this is the difference. You know, there are vanity collection sites, you know. I never wanted this to be Kenneth Goldsmith's UbuWeb, even though, you know, it actually is. I always wanted to keep myself sort of a little below it. You know, people don't really know what it is. They think it's a, a really official thing because it, it, you know, it doesn't look like a fan site. It's really kind of clean. It looks like a museum site or something like that. It feels like an institution. And so I like, kind of like the idea that it's a bit of a fake, really, when in fact it really is my collection, my artistic practice, my vision, 
It's quite an eccentric wunderkammer that emerges out of one's deep collecting impulses. I'm an accidental completist. Ubu Web is an archive of the incomplete. Why are there only five Jean-Luc Godard films on Ubu Web? Jean-Luc Godard made 70 films. Well, these are the ones that are not commercially available, are eccentric. They're the ones that happen to be floating around file sharing at the time. So there's sort of a, a beauty of eccentricity based on availability. Sometimes the complete thing is available. I'll download uh, an album on file sharing, and it turns out it's missing a few pieces. You know, it's missing a few tracks. Somebody was sloppy, or along the way, they shared something that, that they might have mistakenly dragged into, you know, a few things into another folder, and, and that becomes the sort of incomplete artifact that goes. You know, so, you know, things are touched that get shared, and you really don't know where they're coming from. Often the naming is wrong. You know, so there's a kind of a fingerprint of other, you know, used. It's kind of used. I'm interested in the sort of jangly incompleteness of organic uh, quality of things. Things are decontextualized. I often have things all over my hard drive. I don't know what they are. <laughs> they have no ID3 tags. They, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I've got lots and lots and lots of stray things that don't have proper names, and I can't remember where they came from, and I can't remember what part they were a collection of, and I've got, you know, everything. You know, you drag all these things onto your, your iPod or something, and, and they don't come up with any real information. So, so I kind of like that, too. These kind of weird random artifacts that are bits and pieces of something, but you don't know what they are or where they're from. It's kind of lovely. Ubu was just done, you know, really incorrectly. I'm not an archivist. I wasn't trained in library sciences, you know, nor am I an art historian. Nor am I particularly, you know, a scholar of, you know, I mean, I'm just a, all kind of done, you know, like an artist does things, you know, kind of sloppy. It's kind of on whim. The naming schemes, I'm sure a real librarian would find to be disastrous. But you know what? It seems to work for, for everybody else. Institutions are really impressed by Uber Web. If they ever saw the, the mess that it was behind the curtain, they'd really see what an amateur effort it is. Institutions can't do what Ubu's done. Absolutely impossible. So they look on Ubu Web very lovingly and admire it very greatly. They love it because they can't do it. And it doesn't really threaten them. You know, MoMA, whose collection far outweighs what Ubu Web has, 
won't put anything online because they can't because of the the money and the and the legal contracts. You know, you go to MoMA's website, they tell you the the exhibitions that's on or or what's they're serving for lunch today. So this stupid little site has so much more than Museum of Modern Art has. You know, Museum of Modern Art always brags about their educational drive. You know, we we're all about education. But you know, you've got to go to them and you've got to pay your twenty dollars in order to receive their education. Whereas Ubu will never charge money and it's available from your house. And there's a huge educational thrust behind Ubu. I'm an educator by profession, and Ubu just wants to wants to educate freely in a utopian way. If you don't deal with money, you can actually enact utopia. And I think institutions are so tied up with money. Anybody's also going to go after an institution. They'll sue an institution. They're not going to sue somebody who doesn't touch money. I mean, they might, but they haven't. Um, there's nothing to get from me. I don't have money. I don't. You know, there's no assets. You'd be foolish to sue me. But that doesn't mean it won't happen. That doesn't mean, by the way, that what I'm doing is legally right. What I'm doing is legally wrong. By the court of law, UberWeb is a is a disaster. But outside of that, it works. How is it that 16 years into it, I don't have a contingency plan? I don't know. I don't take it that seriously. For me, it's a hobby. If I really took it seriously, I would never do it. Never would have done it in the first place. If I took it seriously, I would have had to do it the right way, you know. To me, as long as I can still kind of think of it as a bit of a joke, I can continue to do it. And I think that's what permits me to entertain ideas that copyright doesn't exist and that it doesn't mean anything and it doesn't matter. I don't have to do it any other way other than what I want to do. People say to me, you know, oh, there's not enough ethnic diversity on, on the site. What do I care? I mean, the history of what I deal with is primarily male and white, the history of the avant-garde, and I, nobody's giving me money. You know, I don't have to have to have more, you know, women or, or, or blacks or, I mean, I would like to. <laughs> Because I think good work is good work, and this is one of the reasons that I went to become uh, partners with uh, Badoon, so we could get more Middle Eastern avant-garde content, which is fantastic. But, you know, I really don't give a shit about that at all. It's a bit of a joke for me. People complain about UberWeb. I say, oh, go use the other place instead. I mean, who invited you anyway? People they get very upset about, you know, you should have this, you should... Well, you know, what do I care? And so that's the attitude that permits it to, to exist, is the fact that it isn't very serious. And if I began to like think of it seriously, I'd, oh, I'd have to form a foundation, and I'd have to get funding. I, I, I don't know. UberWeb kind of fails because it's one person's vision. It's not really very good. And it kind of succeeds because it's one person's vision, and it's very good. I mean, if, if something wants to go up, I, I don't I don't have to run it by anyone. You know, wham, it, there it goes. So this is what makes it possible, but also kind of what makes it kind of crappy in a way. If art historians did this site, I'm sure they could make it much better. Write their own text, get good copies, get everything permissioned. You know, sometimes I have a fantasy that a real institution would actually buy UberWeb copyright problems and all, and actually shore it up and make it something. Say, oh, we've been actually been meaning to do this and we're going to take your collection. The way that Google bought YouTube, all those terrible copyright problems, they somehow managed to kind of work out. It's not 
out of the question that at some point some institution would purchase Ubu. And I think that would be okay. You want to straighten out the copyright things? You want to make it better? You want to put your best minds to doing it? I guess that would be good. I guess I would do that. Then I'd have to think about how to spend my nights. <laughs> I like an artisanal uh, meal as much as the next person, a small crafted wine or, or beer as much as the next person. I love beautiful clothing. I mean, I collect suits. I collect expensive suits. Another one of my, my collections, I can be quite a dandy. And so, you know, those are things that can't be shared. Those are things that are not ephemeral. The more beautiful, the more rare, the crazier that they are, the more I love those things. So, you know, it goes both ways. I, I, we value things more because of the internet painting, for example. You have to see a Van Gogh uh, in person. You, you still have to see a Van Gogh in person. A Van Gogh on the internet really doesn't quite do it for you. You know, the web has a flattening level to it, which is why we travel around the world and we go to see beautiful artifacts, pottery, you know, all those types of things, I think, become more important to us because of the flatness of the web. And yet, things that kind of give you the same end experience, like reading electronically or listening to music, I'm happy to let go. The smell of old books is tangential to the actual reading experience, which was something I'm actually more interested in is reading the words on the page than I am in the smell of old books. I can give that one up. I can't actually give up reading, but I can give up the dusty old bookshop. You know, I don't like to see a dusty old bookshop, you know, replaced, say, in New York by a bank, which they all are. But we haven't lost something. We've only traded it. We would be in very bad shape if the internet hadn't come along. Imagine what the world would look like if we didn't have the internet. All we'd have would be banks. But now on the internet, we've got wonderful cultural archives just without the smell. I'm not feeling so nostalgic for that. I mean, I look, look forward to the time, honestly, and I can almost see it now when I, I leave my collections. I leave it all behind. My wife and I have talked about this moment where we leave everything all our crap behind, and we walk out of our apartment with two laptops and live in complete emptiness. But of course, everything is carrying with us, and I actually look forward to that day. Most of my apartment is just crammed with, with these artifacts, and you know, they are, boy, they're really beautiful. But I look forward to the day when I leave them behind, disperse them. I had a very funny experience seeing a poet, a very important poet to me, a guy named Jackson McClough going out to the flea market and finding his collection of books that he worked from and people had given him and signed him were out in the flea market for sale, you know, very heartlessly and very coldly. And I would have assumed that for an important poet that their library actually would have gone to an archive. But in fact, libraries are ephemeral. They get broken up all the time. The papers and the correspondence all go to an archive. A collection's a temporary thing to be used and then dispersed. Ultimately, my, my collection my great collections will be thrown to the wind, clearly. Mm -hmm.